Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Menega. In this episode, I talk with Matthias Roberts. Matthias is a psychotherapist specializing in religious and spiritual trauma and the author of the recently released book, Holy Runaways, Rediscovering Faith After Being Burned by Religion. You can get connected with Matthias and his work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today, I have my friend, Matthias Roberts, with me, and Matthias is a psychotherapist uh, who specializes in religious and spiritual trauma, and uh, you also recently released uh, a great book. You released a book a couple years ago that we chatted about, but you also recently released a great book called Holy Runaways, Rediscovering Faith After Being Burned by Religion, and uh, super stoked to chat about it, but more than anything, Matthias, this is just a great time for you and I to hang out as friends, right? Yes, I'm so I'm so excited. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, uh, with that said, uh, I just did my little quick introduction of you, but there's so much more to who you are. So, who is Matthias Roberts to Matthias Roberts? <laughs> I, I consider myself primarily to be a therapist. That, that's how I describe myself to folks. Uh, and but aside from all of that, like professional stuff, I. I love people <laughs> that so i would hope so as a therapist that's a, that's a nice little a- attribute to have as a therapist uh-huh. yeah and um yeah this, uh, these questions of like who am i to myself they're they're so existential for me <laughs> like i just i can get into a dark deep hole really quickly i'm a writer i'm a podcaster i um I'm really interested primarily in in questions of how do people heal? Uh, and I, I feel like I explore that throughout my work, you know, both as a therapist, but also my writing, my podcasting is, is these questions of what does healing actually take? Uh, mm. And I, I feel like, you know, I get into that in, in my personal life as well, but it, it is something that has fascinated me for years of, of what actually goes into the process of healing. Um, and, and more emotional healing than than anything else. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, one of those healing uh, stories in your life is obviously your faith and how faith has changed in your life and everything. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about that. I would imagine, you know, being a therapist, uh, being a psychotherapist and dealing with religious trauma and stuff, when you write a book around that, there's some level of research. Obviously, this book is very personal. There's lots of personal stories in it. But uh, certainly, I would imagine there's some research that you've done going into this book. So is there anything that came about in the research for this book that you're like, wow, I didn't know that before? Maybe there was some sort of uh, therapy or psychology or neuroscience kind of fact where you're like, wow, that's really interesting. Uh, or mm-hmm. maybe there's something on like the theology side of things that you learned that was really interesting to you. But was there anything that came up in the research of the book where you're like, wow, did not know that before? Yeah. One of the primary metaphors that I use in the book is that of like concrete. And it, it, it's a metaphor that kind of came to me as I was writing, as I was researching, of all things, concrete <laughs> and how concrete is made. And, and and something that there were a lot of things I didn't know about concrete, but something that shocked me, actually, was that two things. Concrete never stops hardening uh, across its lifespan. So it like it, really? it perpetually continues to harden. Um, and if, if it, so even if after four hours, it doesn't need to go talk to its doctor then, or (laughs) right. Yeah. It just, (laughs) uh, maybe it needs to, it could be, uh, and and it's self healing, uh, if it's mixed correctly. Uh, and, and uh, so, so those things tie into, how I re- I realized as I was I was kind of researching these things that I was taught to think about my faith in, in these terms, or I was taught to try to have a faith that that would be that would continue to harden over time. 
that would get stronger over time. Um, a faith that would uh, be self-healing if, if anything ever came in as an attack. Like this, this really tight system um, that could withstand anything that came against it. Uh, and I, I think those facts about concrete, I realize that's not theology, that's not psychology, but, but those things like kind of blew my mind a little bit uh, and, mm. and had a lot of fun with that metaphor. Was there anything that came up kind of like a, as a self-discovery while writing this book that you didn't know about yourself before? Obviously, you're probably the kind of person that is always really reflecting deeply on yourself and your life. Uh, so was there anything that this book writing process in particular brought out in that self-discovery uh, for yourself? You know, I, I thought going into this book that the theology part of the book would basically be the easiest to write. I, I mm. kind of had, I, I knew I wanted to like work with Renee Girard and uh, James Allison and kind of had a sense of like, here's how I'm going to write about God. Here, here's my argument. And, you know, about six months into the writing process, right as my first deadline was kind of flying by, <laughs> I was only halfway done. I, I realized like I, I was right at that point where I was supposed to be writing the theology. and it was so much harder than I expected. And, and, and I, I kind of, the realization was, I thought I knew what I believed. And as I started to write that down, I kind of realized, like, I don't think I actually believe what I'm saying. Uh, and so I kind of faced this choice of, I can either sit here and write what I used to believe, which would be pretty easy, because uh, it was pretty well packaged. Or I could try to really be honest about where I'm at in both mm. my belief, but also my lack of belief. That's really what was showing up for me was, do I actually believe any of this? And I, I, I chose to do the latter uh, because I felt like it was really important, especially when talking about rediscovering faith, to be honest about my lack of faith um, and the way that that can interplay. And so that was, that surprised me. I, I didn't, I didn't expect that. Was there anything in that theological kind of question you, you mentioned just now that there were a lot, there, there's a lot of like doubt or there's still like a lot of like, I don't know exactly what I believe about this, but is there anything theologically that maybe came up uh, in this book writing process where you're like, I actually feel very convicted about this. Like I, mm -hmm. I, at this point in my life, no, I believe this. Uh, every now and then that comes up for me where mm -hmm. I just feel so convicted by like a theological belief. Uh, and, and I think in the sort of deconstructionist circles that I run in, uh, there there is this uh, superiority of doubt and having kind of this like lack of faith and everything. And every now and then I run into these moments where I'm like, I actually feel super convicted by this. And mm -hmm. uh, even mm -hmm. though... Uh, I, I'm supposed to be or uh, like I run in circles where doubt and lack of faith are supposed to be kind of held um, with, uh, you know, held primarily. There's times where I'm like, actually, I, I don't really have any doubt or lack of faith about this. Like, I feel very convicted. W was there anything yeah. that like that that came up maybe theologically or politically or something along those lines uh, that uh, came up in this this book writing process? You know, I it, it's interesting because there was in. I feel almost apologetic talking about it because it, it feels in some ways I feel ridiculous in that this is something that feels so core to me because <laughs> um, I know there's so much debate around it. But for me, and I don't believe that everyone needs to believe this, but, but for me, like a literal resurrection of Jesus, something hinges on that for me. And, and especially in some of the, 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 what I'm trying to argue in this book is, is that the subversion of violence, the subversion of violent systems in the world was made possible through the subversion of death. Uh, mm -hmm. And again, I, you know, I, I understand and, and believe like it can be metaphorical for sure. And I understand those arguments and I, I I'm not close. Uh, I, I don't feel like, like I said, I don't feel like everyone needs to believe this. I don't care if you don't believe this. But for me, like it, it did shock me in, in a lot of ways that like, oh, like this, this literal resurrection, this literal death and resurrection actually feels really important to me in the way that I kind of think about how it plays out in the world. Uh, mm -hmm. And yeah, again, I, I am almost embarrassed by that. <laughs>
No, I, I mean, I, I think there are probably a lot of people in the circles that we run in that are like, wait, what did you just say, Matthias? But like, right. I right. also, I, I think there's something very curious there uh, for me, even though I, I feel kind of like agnostic about like the resurrection and its histor- sure. uh, historicity. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, like for, for some people, I understand why it's like so important. I will say this for like my perspective on, on uh, the resurrection. I, I do think that if, Jesus did literally resurrect from the dead. It means nothing if it means that he is the only one. Mm. If if he's the only person to ever resurrect from the dead and will ever resurrect from the dead, then that to me means nothing. But if he did Mm -hmm. literally resurrect, then I think it could change everything if it also means that everyone uh, also resurrects uh, and, and has that resurrected life. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I would say I agree with that for sure. Yeah. So again, like I mentioned before, this book is obviously filled with lots of memoir, lots of personal stories, uh, and you share a lot about your own story. Can you share a little bit about kind of the faith that you grew up in and mm-hmm. where you're at now in your faith? So let, let's hear that whole faith journey. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I grew up in a deeply religious family, very conservative, almost fundamentalist, uh, and, and in some ways fundamentalist. Uh, but But I think my parents had very heavy emphasis on grace, which kept us from some of that fundamentalism territory in some ways. You know, homeschooled, grew up at uh, literally at a Christian Bible camp, like a year-round Christian Bible camp. Like my parents were on staff, and so that's basically where I lived. <laughs> uh, and and every Friday night for you was a trip. It was. Uh, just yeah, sleep and, deprivation for Monday through Thursday, and then Fridays were just nuts. Just going for it, yeah. I, you know, I kind of I loved that world. Like it was a, in some ways a really fun place to grow up uh, as a kid because uh, I didn't know any different uh, in, until I started realizing that I was gay, and uh, that kind of started putting a wrench in things very quickly. Uh, and I had to really start to reckon with when I was in college what do I actually believe about this like because I was taught I had to change and that that God could help me change my sexuality uh, so that then I could be you know a good Christian Uh, and I had heard these rumors that there were people out there who believed that you could be you know gay and Christian queer and Christian and be in relationships and I remember thinking like, okay, I'm, I'm like 18, 19 years old. They're asking me to make a choice to be like celibate for the rest of my life. And I was so sincere. I was like, if I make that choice, that means I'm going to like follow it for the rest of my life. <laughs> so I, I better figure out what all these other people are saying before I make a decision like that. Uh, and, and that's really what started a lot of the questioning uh, of you know, theology, the systems that I grew up in, realizing like there are so many other systems out there, discovered the Episcopalian church and was amazed by it. And and that's so, why I you mean, believe in the literal resurrection. You probably. those Episcopalians <laughs> got you, didn't they? <laughs> they did. <laughs> so is this I mean this in some ways a slow unraveling. But also like I mean, running away from the faith that I grew up with and in trying to find a, a faith that felt like I could actually get on board with it, where I felt like I belonged, but not just me, but all these other people I saw in the world who also didn't belong in the faith that I grew up in. And I deeply believed, like, if this faith thing is real, if God is real, then everyone belongs like otherwise it can't be real like i I mean i realize this uh, the logic behind that is probably not sound but that's how that's what i felt like if it's real everyone has to be able to belong uh otherwise it's not real and so so this book really kind of chronicles my my journey into trying to find that faith uh in the midst of being hurt I think over and over and over again by churches um, and and folks within um, within the faith. It sounds like you went kind of straight from like that almost fundamentalist evangelical world to 
you know, the more progressive side of things, the, the more kind of progressive world of Christianity. And, and there wasn't like a, a sort of halfway in between or this kind of moment where you left religion altogether. A, am I correct in making that assumption? At least the way you're describing it, it doesn't sound like there was this kind of period of time where you were non-religious and committed to being non-religious. There was never a time where I think I would have self-identified as non-religious. It wasn't until, so I found the Episcopalian church, then I moved to Seattle, and then I tried to find a church in Seattle. And it was at that point that I started realizing that I had religious trauma. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. And and that was when I like did set everything down. Uh, but I was in seminary at the time. Like I was, I mean, I was, I was still in these deep theological conversations, even though I had set my own faith down but I still would have identified as a Christian. Like it feels convoluted to me in some ways because I look back and even where I'm at right now and I'm like, Oh, am I religious? I don't really think I am. I don't think I was. And yet there's something still about the identity and the faith that is intriguing enough to me that I'm still in those systems (laughs) that Mm -hmm. it it feels, it feels really hard to say like, I am this or I am this. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. The reason why I ask is I do think that it does seem as if people who went straight from like conservative evangelicalism right into some more progressive version of Christianity versus and there's lots of other people uh, where they leave conservative evangelicalism and there's a period of time that they are not religious. They just sort of leave religion all all together and maybe they stay in that that world or maybe they eventually go back into Christianity. There does seem to be a distinct difference in the way that people relate to Christian identity and Christian faith when it's those two different kind of journeys. People who never really ever left Christianity, they just went from one kind of Christianity to another. Uh, and then those who did leave Christianity at some period of time or have continued a lot, like are still not a part of it. Uh, and there's yeah. some difference in that relationship with Christian faith and what they think about Christianity and all of that. I find it very interesting that there, those journeys um, have different perspectives then on Christianity. And I was just curious kind of what maybe you had thoughts around that or not. I, but I'm anyway, that I'm just kind of rambling at this point, but I'm curious around that. If, if you've noticed anything about that when it comes to people's experiences of either going from one kind of Christianity to another or people who actually leave Christianity altogether at some point. Yeah. I, you know, I think about it through this, the psychology lens. Yes. I think like those are, I mean, there are many options, but those seem to be kind of like the two primary options that the people, that people choose. And, and I think, you know, folks who leave, there's something about like I, in some ways, a lot of ways, I actually do wish I had left. Like I, Mm -hmm. I wish that I had been able to kind of get out of that whole world and start to find healing. Cause I think, often to really start to heal we have to be able to split good and bad right so like splitting as a a psychological concept is a developmental achievement where we're able to categorize this is good this is bad Um, and if we never learned how to do that then then we won't get to a point of integration so integration comes later, but splitting comes first. And, and I think it's a far more convoluted path <laughs> to not split these things apart, uh, to not find an identity outside of the church, Christianity, faith, whatever you want to call it, because there aren't those kind of clear lines. So I, I don't think one path is better than the other. I hope I hope I'm not sounding like that. Um, but but I do think like in in the psychology of it, there is something to be said for just being able to say I am not involved with the system anymore. I'm getting out. I'm going to go figure this out for myself. Um, and then that starts to lay I think more fertile ground for reintegration if that's something people want. Um, or reintegration in other ways that faith may not be part of it. Yeah, I, I think it's an important step. I want to personally invite you to Theology Beer Camp this October 19th through the 21st, 2023 in Springfield, Missouri. 
Theology Beer Camp is a time for you to meet some of your favorite theology podcasters, sip on your favorite beverages, and nerd out. You'll meet people like Pete Enns, Dr. Roberto Che Espinoza, Trip Fuller, and even me. And if you register with the link in the episode description and use the promo code MASONGODPOD, all caps, no spaces, you can receive $25 off your ticket. Theology Beer Camp. Come thirsty, get nerdy. I hope to see you there. That's interesting you bring that up because one of the thoughts that I think that I have quite often is I fundamentally believe that something like conservative evangelicalism is inherently toxic. Uh, like, like I'd rather it not exist in the world. At the same time, there's a lot of things that came out of that world that have formed me and continue to form me. Uh, and, and for, you know, for example, and people who follow me on Twitter know this as, you know, I love making jokes about VeggieTales. And I, you know, I loved VeggieTales. And I made a joke yeah. a few weeks ago about something about VeggieTales. And I don't even remember what the joke was. I just remember it was a joke about VeggieTales. And this ex-evangelical person who I've never seen before uh got like really upset with me that I was like promoting this like very evangelical media and I, and thinking that me even making a joke about it was me promoting it and therefore promoting all of evangelicalism or something. Right. And I was thinking to myself, is it possible for me to have the conviction that I think evangelicalism is inherently a toxic thing and also think that there are some of these aspects to it that I think are fun and silly and goofy and and also have been really formative in my life. And I think that kind of complexity in I think is possible. But I'm curious, like from your kind of therapist lens, is that something that is possible to have that conviction about a certain system and also knowing that you were formed and, and had good experiences in some ways, shape or form um, by some of the things that came out of uh, something that you think a system that you think might be inherently toxic? What, what, what are your thoughts on that from like a kind of therapist lens? Of course. I, I mean, I think the reality of the world is that there is this is going to sound like an absolute statement. Of course, there's nuance here because there's always nuance. <laughs> but there's good and bad in most things. And holding those two things together doesn't make them less good or less bad, right? Like, But I think in order to be able to get to that point, we have to be able to have again, developmentally, very rigid boundaries. And, and so I think a lot of what we see in this kind of progressive movement is, is I think we have people who have maybe integrated their experiences and we have people who are who are, don't want to and don't need to integrate their experiences right now, but are actually in that, that place of here's my rigid sense of what is good. Here's my rigid sense of what is bad. And, and anything that threatens my categories of good and bad, I, I can't actually handle. We need, and again, I think this is developmental. I think we need it. So I, I hope people, again, this is my therapist trying to make sure everyone feels good and comfortable. <laughs> is I'm not saying one is better than the other or one is even more evolved than the other. But I am saying like some people need those rigid boundaries in order to then be able to find some more integration, find a sense of self. Some people may always think VeggieTales are very bad and I think that's okay. Other people may get to a point where they can say, yeah, I can hold all these this complexity and this nuance together uh, and that's okay. So I, I don't know if that actually really explained the psychology behind it, but th that rigidity versus fluidity, I would say, is makes a lot of sense, especially if we have been profoundly hurt. Mm. Um, we tend to get more rigid uh, in the service of, of healing. Mm -hmm. It, it does remind me of, uh, and I think this is Richard Rohr that has said something along these lines of like uh, transcend and include kind of thing. Like it, it's very important for us to obviously transcend from some of these systems that we may have grown up in that have hurt us uh, and harmed us. But also there are parts as we go through healing that we're going to be like, oh, wait, that that was actually really good, informative. Uh, and it's actually important to include that as you go on in life. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you've already mentioned this word a few times uh, in this uh, conversation, but you've mentioned religious trauma. 
Uh, and uh, I hear a lot of talk about religious trauma these days, especially in the circles that we run in. What do you mean by religious trauma in this book? Is there some sort of like kind of technical definition that is, exists out there that you're using? Or is there kind of a definition that you're just kind of working with when you're talking about it in this book? But I'm really curious what you mean by religious trauma. Yeah, you know, there is a technical definition of religious trauma. Uh, I, I tend to use the one that uh, the folks over at the Religious Trauma Institute have kind of used as a definition, which I can never remember right offhand, but it, it essentially is an experience within religion that has been too much for our systems to be able to handle. So ideas of like, God hates you, you're going to go to hell, that then overwhelms our system and creates like debilitating physical effects. That is not the definition, but that that's the, some of the essence of the definition. I don't actually use the definition of religious trauma in this book because I think for all the talk out there that I, that I think is legitimate talk about, like how are we defining trauma? And like trauma has become too broad and everyone thinks they have trauma. I do believe everyone has experienced trauma in their lives. Um, I deeply believe that it's part of being human. Um, trauma is as ubiquitous as um, breathing. Of course, there is a scale to trauma. Uh, the, you know, some people have experienced far more severe trauma than others. Absolutely. But I am not, I don't really believe in this idea of gatekeeping who gets to call what trauma. Um, because trauma is a very particular experience to every person. What traumatizes the person sitting next to me in church may not traumatize me um, and vice versa. Uh, so yes, there are actual definitions out there and I am far more interested in someone's experience of their own experience. Uh, Cause mm -hmm. if someone's saying I need healing, I don't want to say, well, but it doesn't fit the definition of trauma so you don't really need to be healed like no like <laughs> we're, we are looking people who who use that word are, are trying on language um that describes something about their experience uh, and that feels mm -hmm. really important to me what are some like signs uh of someone that might have religious trauma like i would imagine a lot of the people listening to this podcast may have experienced some type of religious trauma, uh, but maybe some folks are like, maybe I've experienced religious trauma. I, really, I don't really know exactly. What are some of those signs for somebody to like, kind of get a sense of whether or not they may have experienced religious trauma or not? Yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you a story of what happened to me when I was looking for churches in Seattle. Uh, oh, I can and... think of one church in Seattle that uh, if we're talking about religious trauma, there's one I can really think of. Uh, I did go to that church two Sundays. Um, this is oh, that's boy. not the church though that uh, that traumatized me because I knew <laughs> I went more as an exper an experiment because I was like I want to see what this Mark Driscoll guy is actually like, um, and it was terrible. But I had heard about, so I had I had kind of come to terms. I'd come out, come to terms with my sexuality, and, and there was a church here in Seattle that had it was a, it was an evangelical kind of mega church that had just changed their policy on LGBT inclusion. And they were allowing queer folks at all levels of leadership. And I was like, this is perfect. Like this is this is the church for me, I think. Like it takes the kind of evangelical roots that I grew up with and integrates everything that I now believe around LGBTQ folks. So I find out the closest campus, go on a Sunday morning with a few friends get into the church and worship starts and i find like my heart rate is just rising like my heart is beating faster and faster and i'm kind of looking around finding trying to find the exits looking around at everyone around me with a level of suspicion where like my cognitive brain could say if these people are here they likely accept me um, we can't know that for sure, but this is probably a pretty safe space for me. M my body was saying, this is not safe. Like, you need to get out of here now. I didn't pay attention to it. Like I sat through the service, sat on my hands, like tried to regulate myself, even though everything in me was wanting to get out. Um, but that was one of the first indications for me that, that there was trauma. I was having a physiological response 
in an environment that my brain could say, I think this is safe, but my body was telling me something otherwise. And that disconnect uh, often, not always, but often can be a sign, a sign that there may be trauma involved. Um, mm. Trauma uh, fragmentation is a huge one, being fragmented from our bodies, fragmented memory, uh, not being able to put together a coherent story about what happened to us. That is often an indicator of trauma. That shows up most often, I think, in, in more physical forms of trauma, but can also show up within religious spaces for sure. You know, there, there are other indications, but that sense of disconnect, a sense of I have to hold my body or keep my body in check, otherwise I will be so profoundly uncomfortable can be a sign that actually makes sense then why so many people who grew up in conservative evangelicalism but still want to remain in the christian tradition a lot of those folks end up in more like liturgical type of traditions like the episcopal church like like yourself and it makes sense because the worship from conservative evangelicalism to something like the Episcopal Church is so foreign to folks who grew up in conservative evangelicalism. You know, all the smells and bells that are going on in the Episcopal Church or other kind of liturgical traditions, it just feels like an entire, almost like an entirely different religion when yes. you go from one to the other, uh, which is why, like, if you go into a more progressive evangelical space, th that almost can be almost just as triggering because mm -hmm. it, the worship of, of that space would be very similar to like a conservative evangelical space. So th that is interesting uh, that the, the trauma piece to that is probably why a lot of those folks who want to remain Christian end up going in a lot of those more liturgical spaces is because it feels foreign enough where that trauma is not probably going to um, be as activated. Yep. I think you're spot on there. Yep. Mm -hmm. it, it is unfamiliar enough that it doesn't start to hijack the same systems. Yeah. Right. One of the things I'm really interested in is how Christian theological beliefs shape our experiences. In fact, a lot of my thesis was about this, you know, especially how it um, shapes our physiological experiences. What are some of the most common theological beliefs that negatively shape people's experiences? I can think of a million different ones that a lot of us who grew up in conservative evangelicalism um, believed and then certainly have had profound uh, trauma uh, in, their, in people's lives because because of the things that they believed in in that world. As you've worked with people who have religious trauma, what are the, some of those theological beliefs that they really held dearly at one point uh, that just keep coming up over and over again where it's like, well, that just probably is a really bad belief. And, you know, I, I think it, it, so much of it centers around the, the split of enlightenment between our brains and our bodies. Like <laughs> that, that, that sense of, we cannot trust anything that happens in our bodies. And the only way to arrive at a right belief is through logic, uh, mm. is through correct thinking. I mean, I think that, I don't think it's the only route, but I think it's one of the major roots of so much of the harm that has been done. Where we are taught that our bodies have nothing good in them and any signal that it's giving us is sinful and bad. Which, you know, our bodies respond when we are in environments. Every environment we're in, our body is doing something. And uh, often when we are uh, in environments where we are maybe close to trauma or being traumatized, if we have been taught we can't pay attention to our bodies, then it's just going to fuck everything up even more. We're going to, we're, we're not going to actually pay attention to the signs of the warnings and stay within environments that do cause actual harm. So, so I think, uh, you know, on a broad level, like that is one of the most I think, insidious uh, belief systems that has integrated itself into evangelical theology of like, you know, your heart is deceitful and wicked above all things mm -hmm. yeah, being translated into, right. Yeah. Being translated into any feeling you ever have is deceitful. Don't pay attention to it. Stay here because we know what's good for you. Mm -hmm. You can't trust anything that you're feeling or sensing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's similar to also the belief of total depravity, which I know is also really uh, harmed and hurt a lot of people. Uh, and, and that's one theological belief that um, I think, m like, understood in a certain way, it kind of makes sense that, like, uh, th that 
or, or, or like maybe it's more closer to like original sin or something along these lines of like everything that we do is never going to be like perfect. Uh, like there's always going to be some level of um, uh, not necessarily evil, but that like there's not perfection that's going to happen in everything that we ever do. Um, and, and therefore that really affects everything like that makes sense to me. But the sense that everything that we do is just utterly and totally depraved every, you know, even when you help the old, the old grandma across the street, that is just an act of evil and sinfulness. Like those sort of beliefs really, I, I have found really harm and hurt a lot of people as well. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I often hear from people who experience religious trauma uh, is that, uh, you know, that they long for the community that they maybe have left, you know, they or they long for the kind of community that they've left. Mm-hmm. You know, when you grow up in an environment like evangelicalism, you really find a lot of deep community to the point where in a lot of cases, almost all of your community is only uh, from evangelicalism. And so when you leave that, you almost feel like you leave an entire community. You have nobody left. You don't have family or friends left. And uh, that that really is a like hard part of, uh, of leaving a, a kind of faith. At the same time, I think it's really, really important for people to find community again. Uh, and, and for a lot of people, they want to find that religious kind of community again. Uh, and, and that's just a really difficult process um, to find an entire, entirely new community. Uh, what are some of those like kind of tips or advice or as you work with people who are like, I really long for that community again. How can I find that again? What are some of those things that you help them through? Or what are what are some of the the little uh, bits and pieces that you're like, hey, th- this this might help you as you find new religious community or community in general. What what are some of those things that you you let um, folks that you work with know? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't I don't actually have a lot of tips here, but but more a sense of this is so difficult, uh, mm. and I, I think starting at that point of of how difficult this is one it, it can feel like well what's even the point <laughs> but but i hope people hear in that 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 sense of just because you haven't found it doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong um, like church community is such a particular kind of community that doesn't exist in that same way it's, it's really hard to find any other communities that function that same way because, you know, churches are set up specific certain ways. I, I think when I hear people talk about the wanting that kind of community, one way that I hear it is people who are wanting community where they get to be vulnerable and be met in that vulnerability by folks who also are kind of being vulnerable that there is this sense of connection that goes far deeper than just hanging out together. Right. And and I think that, you know, the church does fosters that through, you know, practices of confession (laughs) through practices of like, what's your sin? Like, sure. There's, there's a lot of things that we can critique about that, but there's an inherent level of vulnerability that comes when we start to talk about these deeper things, when we start to share with people the things that we don't necessarily want to share, that it might feel dangerous to share. And, and so I think when, when people are thinking about how do I start to find that form of community again, my question is, how can you start to foster that vulnerability in the connections that you do have? How do you even know that it's safe to do that? These are in some ways open-ended questions. I think we have to define these things for ourselves because religious trauma often is communal trauma, which means that we're suspicious of any and all communities. And so it's, it's working against us in a lot of ways because we find community, we get really scared. What if everything blows up? No community is perfect. That then presses on our trauma. Like it, slow processes of healing here but i think fostering that vulnerability is important one way i like to think about it is who are the people that you can open a bottle of wine with and chat all night right fostering that bringing those people together it's going to feel awkward if no one knows each other, <laughs> but but paying attention to those things. How do I actually feel in the presence of this one person? Mm-hmm. And then can I start to bring a group together? 
um, or find groups that feel that same way. There is no recipe for it. And it probably will never feel like what church felt like. Can we hold compassion and grief around that and still foster some of these other things that might start to fill a similar place? This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply, or are you called to ministry but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs. Whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. I, I love that vulnerability piece, uh, and, and you connected that obviously with like confession that you see in churches, and it reminds me a lot of like AA. You know, a lot of folks mm-hmm. that uh, realize like, hey, I've got I've got a problem and they come into community. And the first thing that they hear from everybody else in the community is, hey, I'm Mason, I'm an alcoholic or hey, I'm whoever I'm a heroin addict or whatever. But there's that confession there right away. There's that vulnerability mm-hmm. right away. And it breaks down for a new person. It breaks down that like hesitancy of. Am I the only one here who's maybe a little fucked up? And, yeah. and, and then you realize, wait, a lot of us. Are, are like have a lot of things going on in our lives and and, and our lives aren't exactly the way we want them and, and you immediately are disarmed in that way uh and so i think like aa and sometimes even churches really model that really well at the same time like you mentioned before that vulnerability actually does really open up people to the possibility of being really hurt really deeply <laughs> if, if things really get messed up yes. but at the same time it's what leads to transformation in people's lives is to be part of that community and being vulnerable in community. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and the other kind of like thought I have around that is, again, like the thing that I hear from people all the time is that leave something like conservative evangelicalism and losing almost all other community is them thinking that new community isn't possible. And I think <laughs> like one of the first things I always tell people um, beyond like, hey, maybe there's like this church community or whatever. It's new community is possible. You losing your community is does not have the final say on this. Mm-hmm. And a uh, new, new community could be in the ne- next chapter of your life. And so um, I, I think just people people not like settling into the hopelessness that they'll never experience community again, uh, I think is really important. For them to know n- that new community is possible is so, so important, I think. Yeah. Yes, I, I very much believe that it's possible. And I think it's so important to highlight, like it takes time. And I, I think a lot of churches have figured out a way to, in some ways, artificially create community that then turns into real community. Like you can go to a church, many churches at least, and feel like you belong from the first day. Like that is so intentional, right? I think many of us have experience in churches and know the behind the scenes of how they even make that happen, right? Very few other communities work that way. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Very few other communities are trying to be like, how do we make everyone feel like they belong and are included right off the bat? That's not how a lot of communities work. Or can, can we start to be patient enough with ourselves and with other people to trust that that can still be formed? right? Mm -hmm. That maybe the artificiality of the first Sunday, like, oh my gosh, all these people are so nice, isn't going to be there. But that doesn't mean that community can't happen. I I think about like, like, can you go join like a pickleball league, show up every, you know, week or whenever that people are and, and just see what happens as you continue to show up. You might feel like an outsider at first. It might take a long time to start to feel like you're being integrated. 
uh, and it likely will happen. And can you also pay attention to yourself? Nothing will uh, get you a part of a community more than getting your ass kicked by a 70-year-old pickleball player. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> what do you think about online community? Obviously, it seems like a lot of the people who leave evangelicalism find initially community on, on, on the online spaces, whether it's you know Twitter or TikTok or Facebook or Instagram, whatever it might be. It seems like that's sort of the initial community a lot of people find. And I think in some ways that's really, really great and wonderful that they're finding initial community through that. And at other times, it seems like if you just reside in that space and only find community there, you're really missing out on a community's in person. Uh, I'm curious like what you think about all of that. I think online community can be as impactful as in-person community. Um, and I think there is something particular about in-person community, otherwise known as like bodies in the same room as other bodies, <laughs> that regulates our nervous system in ways that cannot be regulated through a screen. But I think often for many of us who have been harmed by community, online community actually allows us to practice being in community again without as much risk, right? It, it allows us to try on new ways of being in the world, try on new ideas, find deep friendships. Like truly, most of my best friends in my life right now came from online community, right? that then shifted into in-person, but we can find in some ways our people <laughs> online, try these new things on, which then make it may make it feel safer to move to the in-person because relationships have already kind of been established. So I think, mm -hmm. I think there's a both and there. Yeah. There, there, there's a lot of practice that then I think, um, that can, can allow for stronger creation of fr friendships and yeah, and community. Um, mm -hmm. So a bit ago, I asked you a little bit about some of the theological beliefs that have come up uh, when you work with people uh, that have really shaped negatively shaped uh, their experiences in the world and have created religious trauma on the inverse of that. Then have there been any like Christian theological beliefs that you've encountered as you work with people that have actually really positively impact as they, you know, as they heal the, and have been a part of the healing process. Has there been any theology in that healing process for people that have really positively impact their lives? You know, I think about from my own experience, as I came out of evangelicalism and eventually discovered like liberation theology and process theology and thinking about God in these very different ways and thinking about the resurrection or thinking about Jesus's death in these very different ways, I was like, whoa, th this, this is definitely going to be a part of my healing process. Have there been any theologies or theological beliefs like that that you have found have been really positive, have positively impacted and healed people from religious trauma? You know, that's really interesting because I think when I especially when I'm working with like clients who are working with religious trauma, we, we rarely get into like, what is a new theology? What is a new theological system? <laughs> mm -hmm. But I'll, I'll tell you what for me feels really important is this idea that healing is even possible, <laughs> that, that, that something good can be created out of chaos or that order can be created out of chaos. Like, that I think is a is a Christian belief. I don't think Christianity has is exclusive to that belief, but but right. I do believe in this this sense of like goodness being created out of harm. That feels integral to how I move through the world, and and I think how many people who are recovering from religious trauma can can start to find those places of oh healing can happen there may actually be a world of love out there and whether we tie that love to god theologically well, i would but whether we do that or not um that that sense of there is goodness there is love there is delight in the world that, that feels so important to me uh and and a lot of my theology uh hinges on those things mm -hmm. 
Well, for, for you in your own life, was there anything uh, as you explored theology that was really, you know, positively impact your healing? Like, uh, obviously, I was kind of talking in general about maybe some of the folks that you worked with, but what ha- has that been a part of your experience? And what are some of those theologies, if that's the case? You know, I I love Rene Girard, but more specifically, the, the work that James Allison has done on uh, kind of taking Girard's philosophy and bringing it into the theological realm. Um, this belief of not only do we all belong, but there is no competition between God and humans, between um, in, mm-hmm. in this kind of this sense of new way of being in the world that it's not about power even though power is a system, <laughs> but, but how do we step into a, a world where we subvert power? Uh, I, I think there's deep themes of liberation in that. Um, I mean, Allison has studied with the, the liberationists since, since he was very young, but, but th- that way of seeing the world of not who is in and out but instead, we are all in, <laughs> and, and and can we continue to be invited into uh, contemplation about all the ways that we push p- people out, but also push ourselves out, um, and and bring those parts into community? Th- that is profound to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it definitely touches on some things. Uh, something that I like, I really think about quite a bit is like how I can relate to the conservative people in my life still. Uh, And and how do I think about them as in, even though I think that they're perpetuating and part of systems that are trying to discreate community or trying to sever community uh, and and trying to create the in and the out. Right. And, and how, how do I not have resentment towards those people, but try to figure out how can I be in relationship that with them in ways that uh, hopefully they can be changed to like I was changed. Uh, and I'm curious, like, again, like with some of the work that you've done in, uh, w- in the therapy realm, like, how do you think through, all right, people can change. How do we how do we get people to relate to the other people in their lives that haven't changed? Uh, I, I would imagine that's got to be a really uh, important part of uh, the healing journey for people that you're working with who have religious traumas. How do you even relate to the people that have been a part of uh, creating the trauma in their lives to begin with? Yep. You, so I would say you get to be resentful. <laughs> you get to have resentment. Uh, that I don't think resentment is bad. I, I think, you know, resentment is often, and Brene Brown says this, resentment is often a sign of uh, there not being a boundary somewhere where there should have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I, I view resentment as a sense of almost a direct compass towards where are the boundaries that we need to put up with people? Because I don't know that the answer is always being in community with anyone and everyone. Uh, that just because I believe everyone is in doesn't mean that I have to be in community with that person, mm. right? Like I can still believe that they're in and have them at a distance or not even interact with them, right? I, mm. I don't think that means that they are not in. So I, I think learning how to set and, and work with our own boundaries, uh, it, it, I don't think healing means letting people who harmed us continue to walk all over us right like and and so i think there are ways yes we can set a boundary with someone who's harmed us they can honor that boundary there can start to be repair and reconciliation and that can be a a process i think for many of us though that may not be possible because those people may not be willing to enter into what reconciliation might actually look like. And, and at that point, I think we have to ask, like, not how do we be in community with those people, but how do we actually honor our own boundaries um, mm. and not interact with those people? Mm-hmm. One, one of the things that I really like about your book that kind of reminds me around these boundaries is that even though for both you and I, our stories is we were, we grew up in this conservative evangelical world and then moved into a different kind of Christian world. But when it comes to rediscovering one's faith, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have to have a 
the Christian faith, right? And and right. you're very clear around that in, in the book. And that's one of the reasons why I really like this book. Uh, and, and obviously for folks listening to this podcast, that, that might be their story is that they maybe left conservative evangelicalism and found a new kind of faith. And, and I think that's a really, really great step for people in that healing. And I'm just curious, like, what your thoughts are around uh, people finding new faith that is not Christian faith when they, uh, you know, leave kind of these more uh, religious trauma sort of base spaces. I think my, my, my caveat in all of this is, are we stepping into more freedom? Are we stepping into more healing? Because I think the tendency can be when we have left a system of trauma is that we can find ourselves right back in a system of trauma without even knowing it, right? Because, and I talk about this a lot in the book, the way that our nervous systems regulate to environments and how difficult that is for that to shift. When we've been in environments of trauma, other environments of trauma are going to feel safe and comfortable. And and so I think, you know, regardless of, of where we go, what faith we might go to, my question is, are we stepping into more freedom? Are we stepping into more integration, into more healing? And if so, then like, well done. Can we trust that, um, that process? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing a lot of like conservative Christians aren't going to read your book. Um, but if they did, if there were some that did, what would you want them to know about those who wholly run away? Oh, I mean, if you, it feels like futile to say this because my book isn't going to convince anyone of anything, um, at least on that side. Like, but my my hope would be that they it would allow them to take us a little bit more seriously. <laughs> that mm. they would be able to see that there is there is reason for this, um, and that harm is actually real. That would be my hope. But is it going to do that? Probably not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not trying to be wishful or a little uh, too dreamy about it, but uh, but it would be it's it, it is interesting to think like what what would you want that person to know if they were going to take what you say seriously, uh, yeah. and, and I I think that's a it's an important thing to at least consider right and so mm -hmm. uh, but yeah <laughs> I think both of you and both both of us uh, are are not going to be too wishful about that actually going to be happening but right knows? right because yeah. I mean in all honesty I didn't write the book for them so right. like totally. Like that's not what the book's for, and um, yeah, I in a lot of ways don't really care, but also care a lot. Like both of those things are true. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. How do you hope Holy Runaways uh, inspires and liberates its readers? Yeah, I you know I hope primarily it feels like a like a warm companion along the, the, this journey, and and I and I hope that whether folks are kind of just starting out on this runaway journey or uh, deconstruction journey, whatever that, that it will feel that way. But also for folks who have been, who are much further along that when they read it, it will, it will help again, integrate things that have happened. You may already be well beyond what I talk about in the book, but I hope it might give some language for like, Oh, here's what was actually happening when I did X, Y, and Z. This makes more sense now. Give, giving more room for yeah reflection, but also yeah companionship in, in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things that I found really, really healing when I first started going through the quote unquote deconstruction journey is finding companionship with people that I didn't know existed where I was like, wait, I'm not the only one. You know, when I read like Rachel Held Evans or Nadia Boltz-Weber or Brian McLaren or whoever it was, the the almost the most transformative thing wasn't exactly the things that they were saying. It was the fact that I wasn't the only one having these kind of questions. And that was really, really healing for me. And so I hope that that's the case for people who read your book. Maybe, maybe they have no idea this kind of Christianity exists, or maybe they have no idea that leaving conservative uh, kind of toxic religions uh, is a thing that can happen. But if they find your book, at the very least, I hope that they realize, wow, I'm not the only one. Yeah, yeah I hope so too. Mm -hmm. uh last question matthias how can listeners get connected to you and your work yeah i'm across the internet at matthias roberts uh, matthiasroberts.com pretty easy to find me uh and holy runaways is available wherever you buy books where uh, where would you recommend people buy the book your local bookstore um or bookshop.org uh because that supports local bookstores yeah that's that's what i would recommend
Love it. Well, Matthias, thank you so much for writing the book, chatting a little bit more about it. I think it's so great. Uh, and so I'm just really grateful that you wrote it uh, and that you wanted to chat with me about it. I, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Ever since I saw that you were going to release it, I was like, got to get you back on the podcast. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's fun. If you'd like to connect with Matthias and his work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. Thank you.